All right, so I think I do believe we are ready to roll. Well, um, thanks everybody. It is the 13th of September 2009, time for Ye old Sunday Show. And, uh, you know, proud dad update number 12 million. Uh, it, it's, it's so so cool today. Actually, Christina's been on a conference for a couple of days. So I've been, uh, uh, you know, Mr. Mom. And uh, it's been fascinating because, you know, the last two days is the two days that Isabella has decided to stop having her second nap. So uh, I guess, I don't know, she gets pretty hyper when she's around me, as you can imagine. So uh, we had uh, we had lots of fun. I took her to the pool today, and and we went for walks and stuff, and it was really uh, really nice. And um, she uh, she actually stood up without using her arms. Like she she was against the couch. She had something in her hands, and she put her she just sort of leaned up against the couch and played with what was in her hand, uh, without uh, uh, using any hands to hold onto the couch. That was pretty cool. But but even more exciting, uh, I, I I sort of play this game with her with uh, with Christina where. Uh, sort of try and make her laugh and she particularly likes it when she's in Christina's arms on the stairs and um, so the last couple of days for some reason when I have her binky in her mouth and I sort of spit it at her at high speed not at her but by her at high speed she really really giggles and so uh, I pass the the, um, the binky the, the pacifier to her in my mouth and then she paused looked at it and I guess wanted to laugh again so she actually passed it back to me to, to do it again, and that uh, happened a couple of times. That's the first time she's been really reciprocal in a very conscious way, that way, so that was, uh, that was really cool. Uh, so it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. And I finally did uh, finish a podcast. It's completely ridiculous how long it takes me to get a podcast on these days. I did finally finish a podcast on RTR at work, um, which uh, uh, comes with its own vat of baby oil for those intimate boardroom encounters. I hope that you'll enjoy it. I will post it this week, and I do have a couple of uh, uh, chatty casts that are uh, in the queue, but I've been uh, pretty uh, pretty busy on, on the old uh, reproductive side. Well, not really the reproductive side, the effects of reproduction side. So, uh, thank you for your patience. And uh, that's really all I had to say, uh, just because uh, it's been a while since we've had a chance to chat in this kind of environment. So, um, if y'all have stuff to say, feel free. Hey, Steph, I got a question for you. Why, surely. Can you hear? Uh, yes. Um, this has something to do with your background in IT. Um, I'm interested in starting my own business with a friend of mine. It's going to be like a copy and print shop with a design component. But we're really worried about giving over a lot of control to an IT person. And I was wondering, in the in the professional world, how much um, how much control do IT people have over things like? Um, you know, can they see, uh, well, I guess pretty much they're setting up the entire network, so they're going to be able to see everything. How do you prevent them from screwing you and taking information and stuff like that? That's a, that's a good question. So you, you obviously, as a, as a print shop with the design element, you have a lot of tech uh, stuff floating around that you need to get done, right? And um, the, the, right. the question is, how do you get an IT person who's not going to get all freaky trolley on you? Is that, is that the, uh, that's the question, right? Yes, because I've actually had to deal with a good friend of mine who was an IT specialist in the past, and um, you know he couldn't separate the professional from the friendship. And what ended up happening is he took a lot of our information, and um, you know I was hoping that maybe with your experience you could explain a little bit more about what I should do or give me some point me in the right direction of where where I should look to prevent that in the future. Yeah, I mean it's it's a great question. Um... I, I can give you a couple of tips that have been helpful for me, but uh, you know, obviously, it's uh, it's just uh, 
uh, nonsense opinions, but I can give you a couple of things if, if you'd like that, that I, I've used in the past, yeah, that, that kind be, of stuff. That would be very helpful. Sure. Okay. Well, the, the first thing that I would suggest is, is and this is, this is all kinds of cliched, but I, I think that there's some truth in it, that you can get really brilliant IT people who have, you know, the, the social skills of your average lepr- leprosy bacillus, right? And so people who have really, really, like they've taken all the courses in the world, they've, you know, certified up the yin-yang and they have uh, every conceivable um, acronym after their name. Are, but of course, that all comes at a cost, right? I mean, uh, that all comes at a cost in terms of just basic social skills and all that kind of stuff. And that's not just true for IT, but for other things as well. So if you look for a more well-rounded person, like if you look for a person you know, I know this is shocking in the IT world, who maybe has played some uh, uh, team sports. Uh, team sports can be really good in terms of uh, um, helping to figure out people who've got some basic social skills. Because in team sports, you do have to deal with... I mean, you can't be a weird troll on a team in a team sport for very long because people would just not, you know, they'll just take their, their ball and go home, right? So uh, I would say that... Um, uh, that that is one one way to to do it. When you're doing the interview, look for you know social cues, look for social skills, look for grooming, look for knowledge of you know occasional current events. Ask them a question out of entertainment tonight, you know. And if they give you that withering uh, notes from the underground look, then maybe keep moving. Just you know, are they are they in touch with with the world? Do they seem to have friends? Do they have a tan? Uh, you know, uh, can they match their pants with their uh, Klingon headdress? You know, whatever it is that that you've got going on there. Uh, I would say those things uh, are very helpful. It's not guaranteed, but uh, but it can be uh, it can be really helpful. Like I mean, if you've known some of the trolls that have been around FDR, they're pretty evident pretty early, uh, and uh, at least you know once you once you get an eye for it. And um, so so I would really look for a more well-rounded individual who's got some social skills. And it doesn't mean the person's going to work out, but it means that if it doesn't work out, then uh, you know at least they're not going to be uh, stuffing bananas up your tailpipe or something. That's not a metaphor. I just remember that from an Eddie Murphy movie. So um, that would be uh, uh, one, one suggestion uh, uh, that I would make. Uh, the other thing is, uh, you know, uh, you post, post, a, post for what you want on the board, right? Maybe there's someone from the FDR community who can either work remotely and set you up or who can uh, bust it in or who, can, uh, or who maybe is even close enough to, to work. Uh, and again, it's not like everyone at FDR is, you know, a guaranteed winner, although I think almost all of them are. But uh, and particularly people who've been around for a while, you're going to share those values, right? You're going to share, you know, if you start talking about uneasiness uh, about a certain thing and they, you know, have some idea of RTR, they're not going to look at you like, why are you telling me your feelings, Earthling? So I would also say, you know, poke around and see if there's anyone uh, in the community who you might be able to contract with. Uh, because this kind of thing, it sounds like, I'm no expert in the print business, but it sounds like it's more of a setup than a long time thing. You're not going to need someone in there full time, uh, 40 hours a week for your network. It may just be a setup thing. So you may want to post it to see if there's anyone in the community who shares philosophical values and, you know, some emotional self-knowledge and so on. And that will uh, minimize uh, the chances of, of that kind of unnecessary uh, conflict, if that makes any sense. Is that is that anything of, of use yet? Yes, definitely. Um uh, one of the things my my business partner is actually uh, the one who got me into FDR. So I think, uh, in terms of going into business together, we both understand that aspect and relationships, and uh, as well as the whole uh, anarcho-capitalism aspect. So yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense to look for somebody who shares our values with that. Sorry, you mentioned business plan. I just I just wanted to remind you that as an anarchist, your business plan should only be to buy vintage motorcycles 
uh, hair gel, uh, machetes. Uh, that really should be your only business plan. There is no other business plan for an anarchist unless you're fronting for some even more violent organization. I just wanted to mention that. Uh, as an anarchist, that will be uh, uh, the only way to go. Well, we also budgeted for tattoos and chains. You forgot those, too. Well, I mean, why would the you Mohawks. need to mention them? That's like having a business plan saying we intend to breathe. Uh, you know, that's just taken <laughs> utterly and completely. And and if you, uh, it's something that's been floating around in the community. I know that there's a lot of people who are doing entrepreneurial stuff, uh, you know, because there's a question that floats around. It's like now that I've been infected with this virus of philosophy, uh, how do I live a life with integrity? And I think one of the ways that you can do that to some degree the easiest is to be an entrepreneur and there's been some of those things floating around we've had a bunch of conversations about them I have one that I still have to release from a couple of weeks ago a month ago and uh, so it may be uh, that uh, if you if you were wanted to uh, you know set up a sort of a monthly or bi-monthly you know conversation we, we could uh, have people who are in the entrepreneurial sphere uh, talk about uh, some of the challenges and uh, uh, insights uh, you know sort of a brain trust of, of people who have uh, who are kind of in the same challenge for the same uh, reasons in a way. Uh, it's just something to think about. You might want to talk about it with your partner if you think it would be of, of utility to to have that kind of thing. I would certainly be happy to uh, to sit in if that would be of use. Oh, I, I think so. I think part of the, the thing is um, it's been very difficult to, to imagine uh, all of this stuff about capitalism when it was so abstract. But once you start actually working on a business and becoming an entrepreneur, then it makes a whole lot more sense to, to me at least. Um, and you really see it right, right on. And it's easier for me like now to debate a socialist, for example, because now I'm starting to understand more about the dynamic of customers and, and, and making people happy that way. Uh, so, yeah, I think that would be really a great idea. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think that uh, I was uh, <laughs> the uh, the guy I talked to last week, uh, who was the anarcho uh, communist. Uh, yeah. You know, you you just knew that he got all of his knowledge about factories and business owners from a book, and you know that to me is like doing doing a whole graduate course or, or even a whole degree on uh, you know black studies and never actually talking to a black person. That to me was just kind of ridiculous. <laughs> and it's the same thing. It's like ah, you know, business owners are exploitive and they're ruling the workers with an iron fist and this and that. It's like, Jesus Christ, get your head out of, like, Metropolis and get your head into the real world. Have you actually ever yeah. talked to a factory owner? Have you actually ever run a business? Uh, it is something that, until you've done it, it's it's really, really tough to get the free market. And, I, you know, that's part of the beef I have with uh, with uh, some of the free market economists as well. You know, it's it, it's you know it's one thing to read about it. It's It's a completely different kettle of fish to actually do it. You know what I liked about that conversation you had last week is the guy was basically using capitalism. Uh, he said that first that capitalism was invalid as a system, but then he said to get to his system you need capitalism. So he's kind of well, you can't steal if nobody's producing, his own right? Definition. You you can't steal if nobody's producing, right. right? And and I think communists have have accepted and understood, and even Marx accepted and understood, right? For Marx, the progress was tribalism, feudalism, capitalism, communism, right? Uh, and uh, Marxists basically have accepted that Marx, uh, Marxism as is, is a system, communism as a system, has no incentive to create. There's no incentive to create, and they've accepted the the historical realities of every goddamn centrally planned socialist communist economy and the decay in entrepreneurship and the decay in the incentive uh, to produce, to create, to take the risks that you have taken, that I have taken, or you are taking, that I have taken, that others have taken. And so they basically have accepted that communism isn't going to create wealth. And so that's why he said, well, you know, yeah, nobody's going to want to make factories. That's why we're going to inherit them from capitalism. And it's like, 
Oh, I, and like and when people say that with a straight face, it's almost like you don't even know where to start. You know, it's like you're starting a debate with somebody and says, and they say, I'm right because Keebler the Magic Elf tells me that I'm right. And it's like, I'm sort of at a loss, you know, <laughs> at that kind of stuff. And and I do, guys, I, I did get a little impatient. I hope it didn't come across too forcefully. I do get kind of impatient when people talk about, you know, what I consider the initiation of the use of force, collectivizing everybody's property, and they don't think the goddamn thing through. You know, that did cost, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of lives in the 20th century with that example in hand, I think it's worth thinking a little bit through. And that's why I use that convenience store thing. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, so uh, it, it's really different when you've, when you've been in the environment. It's how do you keep from getting frustrated? Because I've debated a couple of socialists and it's, it's not like they've ever really thought their positions through. They just recite the propaganda. And so it gets really frustrating when you're just trying to get them to see, Hey, you know, wait a minute, think about that. You know, where's the production going to come? Where are the new things going to come from? If nobody has the incentive and they don't even stop to think about it. And it's really frustrating. Well, you're assuming I don't get frustrated, right? I mean, uh, that's, uh, uh, that's not exactly uh, the case. I certainly do. Uh, I certainly do get frustrated for sure, but uh, it's a little different for me. Um, you know, for two reasons. One is that I, you know, for for better or for worse, have a a bit of authority, right? So I have the mic. It's right. my show, and I can cut them off. Uh, so it's not quite, you know, two guys in a bar kind of thing. Uh, and the other thing too uh, that I think uh, is uh, is a little bit different is that my level of frustration is. Like, if you're in a debate with a socialist and it's just you two, and he says all kinds of stupid stuff, and you waste an hour trying to talk him out of his stupid stuff, and you get nowhere because it's stupid, uh, it's really, it's a net loss, right? It's just, it's like 10 hours of voluntary dental readjustment for no reason, right? And so that's that's a huge net loss. Whereas for me, if I spend an hour debating with a socialist or, I don't know, a libertarian presidential candidate or Jan Heldfeld... I I haven't just wasted two hours or an hour and a half or an hour or whatever it is uh, because I have you know presented my position I've taken down someone else's arguments and there are all these thousands and thousands of people who are going to end up seeing it uh, and coming to their own conclusions so for me it's a net gain to have these debates and that's why it's less frustrating for me if I was just frustrated if I was just debating one on one I I just like uh, you know my eyes would roll so far in they'd be like slot machines uh, and I just I just stop right away because you know that's that falls into the life's too short category but. Uh, I get to um, to have an audience uh, in perpetuity through the podcast, and so for me, it's a different environment to to have those kinds of debates. If that makes any sense? Uh, totally, yeah. All right. Well, uh, if you can post it on the board, uh, you know, maybe just post a topic and ask if there are any people in the entrepreneurial world. I mean, I can think of at least a dozen off the top of my head, uh, and maybe we could uh, could set up a. Um, uh, you know, uh, we start up monthly or bi-monthly or whatever and uh, just, just have a call and, and you know, bring up uh, specific issues or general questions or approaches. Because, uh, I mean, I've had a bunch of conversations with people based on my entrepreneurial experience, which is not you know, anything godlike, but I think is useful. And uh, they sort of scattered, but I, th- I think it would be something that would be worth, uh, I think, worth and very productive, not just for us, but for others to, uh, to, to sort of get a, a view inside the boiler room. Yeah, post that. I'll, I'll post it on the board later and uh, just see if anybody uh, if anybody's interested. Okay, thank you very much. You're very welcome, and uh, best of luck. And uh, you know, if the calls, uh, if nobody's interested, which I, I think there will be, do do keep us uh, do keep us posted. Excellent. 
Now, uh, and if anybody else has questions, I've noticed there's some people who haven't been around for a while, and I'm, I'm dying to ask how things are going, so I will, uh, if, if you don't mind, but um, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I want to keep it open to, uh, to questions uh, that people may have, or comments, or criticisms, or whatever be on your brains. I, I, if nobody else says anything, I do have one more thing to bring up. Please do. It's about organized sports. And it's, I guess it's just more venting of frustration about organized sports that I have, is that I just don't understand it. Like, for me, it's, it's just a game. I, I enjoy playing the games, but I really don't enjoy watching them on TV because it's watching people you don't know playing a game and getting paid lots of money for the game. Sure, it's entertainment, but I think too many people take it way too far. And I'd like to maybe take hear your thoughts on organized sports because I don't think I've... I've, I've listened to pretty much all the podcasts, and I don't think it's ever been covered before. Well, I mean, you, you, will, you will absolutely get a rant from me out of, uh, out of organized sports. But, um, uh, you know, there are some, uh, some aspects of it that are, you know, I'm certainly no doctor, but there's some aspects of it that appear to be physiological uh, in that people really do get a high. When they, uh, when their team sports, uh, sort of when their team scores or or wins, they actually do get uh, an endorphin rush, a high uh, of the body's natural opiates. So it is, a, it is a kind of addiction that uh, comes. It, it, it's similar to gambling, right? In that gambling is throwing yourself on the vagaries of chance. Although at least with gambling, you have some skill involved in most gambling aspects. But in sports, it's really, I mean, it's really passive. And, I mean, you really are just sitting there, uh, you know, throwing popcorn in the air and yelling at the TV or whatever. And so uh, it is much less involved or engaged, uh, I guess you could say almost infinitely less engaged than, um, uh, than gambling. But it has a very similar kind of stress and tension, right? So uh, when, when teams do badly, people actually feel bad. They get depressed. Um, and when teams do well, then people, they get literally uh, natural opiates in their bodies, in their systems, and they feel a real high. And uh, it is, to me, it is a, <laughs> it's a pathetic thing. Now, I mean, I have enjoyed a couple of sports games in my life. Unfortunately, the first sports game I ever went to was a football game, which after two hours was nil-nil. And so that <laughs> was my first taste, and I was like, I don't really get this at all. Uh, but I have enjoyed a couple of games uh, that I've watched uh, in my life. Um, the Toronto one... Um, uh, I think it was 93, we were on the World Championship in, in baseball. I remember watching that game. Uh, I remember I had a really sore throat, and I, I had a cold, I had a really sore throat, and I wanted to go out and cheer with everyone, but I could barely make a sound, so I just went out and made armpit noises or something. Uh, there was that, and there was, I think, uh, some Olympic game between Canada and the U.S. where a bunch of people that I knew at the time were getting together, and I kind of got into the spirit and, and so on. And when I was in, in business, we used to take clients to hockey games, and uh, we had really, really good seats. And, uh, I, you know, I thought, I thought it was interesting to, but, but fundamentally I get quite bored quite quickly of sports. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's just not that much fun for me to watch. I, I, you know, I don't mind watching uh, some, some gymnastics or, you know, I guess dance is a kind of sport, but, um, I think that, uh, it has always to me been indicative of, of something, something must be missing from someone's life if they need those kinds of um, highs and lows. There, there must be something that, that is not present in someone's life if they feel they need to throw themselves on the vagaries of chance that way. Uh, you know, in the same way, and of course it's a much much more extreme example, in the same way that, that somebody who plays Russian roulette, you know, where you spin the chamber with one bullet 
uh, and pull the trigger, something must be missing from that person's life that they need that kind of stimulation to feel alive. And uh, so I, I, I must say that I, I do find sports addiction to be, uh, and, and for a lot of people it is a real addiction, uh, I find it to be, be very, very sad. And uh, I, I just I remember, um, I think here in Toronto we have a, there's a team, there's a team called the Maple Leafs and they play hockey and they haven't won the Stanley Cup, which is like the national championship since 1967. And I used to just occasionally just tweak people that way, you know, it's like, hey, you know, I, I'm almost as old as the last time that you won the cup here. And people would literally, they would get enraged. They talk about this Harold Ballard guy who came in and and you know the, 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 they would the, 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 they get really mad. He came in and he stopped spending money on the players, and the 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 the, the audience should have the, the the fans should have just stopped going, but they kept going. And so he figured, well, I don't have to spend money on the players because my fans will keep coming. And and he ripped us off, and he blew our chances. And now we you know we have that kind of team. We can't we don't have the money anymore to spend on. People get really upset at this kind of stuff. And I just, I just find it sad. I just find it's, uh, it's empty. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's silly. And, and, and of course, fundamentally, it's completely meaningless, right? I mean, I, I remember even as a kid, uh, we used to go, my brother and I used to go to see movies a little ways down the road. It's amazing. You could, you, we would spend 10 pence, which I guess would be the equivalent of, uh, I don't know, maybe 20 cents or a quarter. Uh, and and we would get like two and a half hours of like shorts and movies and stuff. And one of them would always be some sort of sports team, you know, like a sports game where the the loser team gets together and they get whipped up by some different coach, you know, some coach who's not uh, straight and narrow. And then they they ride to victory and so on. And to me, it was always completely obvious, you know, like the red team is playing the blue team, and we're really rooting for the red team. Why? Well, because we've been following the red team story. And and of course, it struck me even as a kid. That if we were following the blue team story, we'd be rooting for the blue team. There's obviously no ethics in it and no morality, no good, bad, no right and wrong, no progress, no efficiency. It's just uh, blind, idiot, dumb, addictive tribalism. So I, uh, I, and I, I think of the enormous amount of human energy, creativity, economic possibility that would be liberated if people just got off the goddamn couches and stopped watching all this stupid stuff. Uh, you know, the amount of money that would be put back into the economy that would actually be productive rather than just stupid consumption, uh, I think would be just great. The number of people who would get to do something productive with their lives rather than just bounce balls into hoops or into nets uh, or, you know, throw pig, pig skins around, you know, which is great. They love sports to play. I'm a sporty guy, but uh, it has just struck me as a huge and destructive and parasitical waste. And uh, as I talk about, there is one podcast very early in the series, I think it's in the tens, uh, called Sports in the State, which is that um, I remember when I was a kid in boarding school, uh, sports was really drilled into us, uh, and there is an old saying that the you know the Battle of Waterloo was won on the fields of Eton. Eton is a, uh, a, a sort of prep school, very high up private school, and uh, it's the idea that uh, the the relationship between sports and war uh, is is very close, right? So uh, the, the, you raise good commanders in war through putting them into grueling, highly competitive uh, and aggressive sports as children, and I think there's some real truth to that, and uh, it does give you stupid blind loyalty to your team, which then translates into stupid blind loyalty to your government, so to speak. So that's my, uh, my sort of brief, uh, not so brief, I guess, but people didn't have too many questions. That's my, my brief uh, uh, thoughts on it. What, uh, what do you guys think? Well, I agree. I think sports is a colossal waste of time, um, and in a way, it's, it's, a, it's a fantasy almost like religion. 
um, where they have people have a faith in a team when there's no proof, there's there's nothing to back up that faith. I mean, I heard uh, I, I live in New York City, and there's this rivalry between the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox, and they interview on the news, they interview the Yankees fans, and they're like, "So, what do you think of the game?" And the the Yankees fans are like, "Well, the Yankees are going to win." Well, why are the Yankees going to win? It's just because they are. And it and so much reminds me of these same arguments when it comes to talking about it to a religious person as you would when you talk to a, a hardcore sports fan. Is that they have faith in the team just for because it's it's there. And they don't have any real reason why they're, they, have, they believe the way they do about their team. Right. My team is the same as my God. Right. I mean, and I think I mentioned this in that early podcast, but it's a memory that comes back to me from time to time. I was like five or six years old, and my team in, was Crystal Palace, and they were there's I think four divisions in England, if I remember rightly, and Crystal Palace was always like the bottom of the third division. They were just a crap team, and uh, I, I don't think I never go to I never went to watch them play. Um, and I, there was some guy, some other kid, you know, was playing in my neighborhood, and he was from West Ham, the West Ham, whatever that district is, the West Ham team, which was a good team and doing well or whatever. Arsenal and Liverpool and West Ham were all the top soccer teams or football teams in England. And he came over and he's like, yeah, your, your, your team Crystal Palace sucks. You know, and he's one of these really aggressive, just jerky kids that I guess are around. Uh, not really jerky kids, but <laughs> children of jerky parents. Right? <laughs> what is it uh, Dawkins says? There, there are no Muslim children. There are, only Muslim, uh, there are only children of Muslim parents. There are no jerky children. There are only children of jerky parents. Um, and, and I do remember saying to him, and I mean, I know it sounds abominably precocious, but I do remember saying to him very clearly, I remember the, the, the day, I remember the weather, I remember the shadows uh, on, the, on the lawn. I remember saying to him, but it's just, you're just born there, and I'm just born here. Like, it's accident, right? <laughs> it's an accident. I, I, didn't, I don't think I even got the wording right, but I just remember that uh, very, very clearly. And getting people to understand that, it's like getting a Christian to understand that he would be a Muslim if he were born in Syria. Right. Or a Rastafarian if you were born in Kingston Town or whatever. Right. Like it's just frickin coincidence that you happen to worship the guy who walks in water and not the guy who married a nine year old. Right. So uh, it's it's this coincidental aspect of things that is it's such a fragile, ridiculous and pathetic thing to base any sense of superiority on that. Uh, it's just it's it's exactly the kind of bigotry that goes on between the races or between the genders or between cultures or between countries. To turn the accidental into a virtue is the fundamental lie of the false self, in my opinion. Right, and it very much mirrors the state with the accident of birth as well. Like, just because I was born in New York, I'm a Yankees fan, and that was pretty much the only thing. It's just like, I'm born in America, and therefore I'm an American. You know, it's just the accident of birth. It means nothing. Yeah, like my my uh, my gene pool just happened to be over this particular place when the umbilical cord let go, and it's like here I am, and it is it is a terrible thing to take pride. I mean, we understand that you know white pride is is a pretty vile thing, right? To take pride in yourself for your gender, or your sexual orientation, or your race, we understand that that's a pretty pathetic and vile thing, and and has led to a lot of destructiveness. But uh, to take pride in, in your nationality is patriotism. It's not bigotry, you see. It's patriotism. And that, but it's exactly the same as white pride. And even the, um, the team stuff, obviously, it's not quite as noxious. But, uh, of course, it can erupt into violence in England uh, quite considerably. It does, and overseas, when the British teams play overseas. But we, we see it very clearly when it comes to racism and sexism and homophobia and things like that. But we don't see it when it comes to these other things, which are all accidents of birth. Uh, and, uh, but, but, but the reason that people cling to that stuff 
is that the alternative is to be who you actually are, right? The alternative is to be authentic, to to be rational, to to be evidence based, to be philosophical, to to be to to mature into an authentic authentic human being. And that it's a very difficult and costly process, as we all know, who who are going down that road. And I think that's everybody here. So it's just a lot easier to paint yourself blue and cheer like an cheer like an idiot than to try and discover the truth about yourself and the world and to live with honor and integrity, right? I mean, that, that's why people take these fake shellac empty substitutes for having a soul. Right. I mean, I, for me... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's right. Um, you want to go on? Go ahead. No, go for it. Oh, okay. Um... I was just uh, sort of relate a slightly different personal experience as far as sports is concerned. And um, it wasn't so much the arbitrariness of I was born here, therefore, you know, I have to be Yankees fan, right? Because I, I was born in northern New Jersey as well. Right. Um, but, you know, and this, 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 this I mean, it, it comes back to pretty much what Steph was saying about uh, not being authentic, but what I remember whenever I think of any sport, pretty much basketball, football, baseball, anything, it was always on television on Sunday and my father could not be interrupted during a game. It's just, it was this harsh, you know, um, every single time. And, and even, even thinking about it and remembering it right now is just r- ridiculous. Um, and for as long as I can remember, you know, that, that sort of reaction. Um, I, I think I, I understand that. And I, neither of my parents were, at least I certainly don't know much about my dad, but my mom was certainly not, not sports, interested in sports. But the other thing I think that's important to remember is like, w- what other function does sports play? Well, like the other function that sports plays is to humiliate uh, children. Right. I mean, the, the, the kids who are good at sports have, you know, some natural ability, of course. Right. I mean, there is some natural ability that you need. But, you know, again, going with that sort of outliers idea, you, you just need a lot of practice to be good at uh, at sports. And who, who are the kids who get the most chance to practice? Well, it's the kids who have uh, uh, better parents. Right. It's the kids who have more money. Uh, it's the kids whose whose households have enough structure to be organized to actually get the kids to practice and get the kids to do this or that. I mean, I was, uh, I was on the uh, long-distance um, running club track and field. I was a uh, water polo swimmer, uh, tennis uh, club. I mean, I did lots and lots of sports, but I just willed that stuff. Like I, just, I mean, there was no structure. It was all complete chaos and madness in my house. But I just, I just really wanted to do that stuff, and I just willed that, uh, that stuff. I played uh, uh, soccer every uh, every every Sunday for most of my my teenage years for like two two and a half hours and I mean I was I was just really uh, into uh, I played squash uh, relentlessly and and so on so I I just sort of willed that stuff but but most of the kids who uh, uh, who don't who have sort of chaotic or or destructive or disruptive households or households where there's not good food or they're overweight or whatever right I mean sports is a way to it, it's almost like it 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 expands the class divide between the kids with more healthy families and the kids with less healthy families, elevating the kids who already have good families and lowering the kids even further who come from bad families 
And I think that is something that's really tragic, uh, really tragic, uh, the degree to which, you know, the, the, the last kid picked on the team, you know, is the kid with glasses or the fat kid or something like that. And, oh, that stuff is just horrible. It's just horrible. Uh, and there is this this consistent joke in every right in every high school movie or TV show or whatever you'll see that you know the jocks are kind of dumb but they rule the school and who are the you know the Dungeons and Dragons mathletes and the geeks and all that I mean they're obviously much smarter and most of them have a much better future ahead of them in many ways but they're uh, jokes right I mean they're so it's really really primitive you know like uh, it, it to me it just seems so face painted tribal outback stone age trash you know that that physical prowess and throwing and catching balls and stuff like that would be the mark for sexual selection or the mark of of uh, social status when you know how many times did you have to catch a football in your last business meeting right whereas the you know the people who develop social skills who read who uh, learn how to use computers and so on those people actually have a future in the business world for the most part and so it is, uh, it is really, really uh, uh, wretched the degree to which I think it widens the class divide. And, uh, of course, since the people who come from more functional backgrounds in many ways tend to rule the world, they uh, have a great incentive to, uh, you know, keep the lower classes down. And sports is a really, really good way of further humiliating those who have experienced too much humiliation already at home. Uh, water polo is extremely demanding. Uh, water polo was by far the most brutal sport except for extreme long distance. Water polo was the most brutal sport I ever uh, did. I did it for about two years, and then I just stopped because it, it was just too brutal. So uh, I just want to mention that. If you're interested in water polo, uh, it, is, uh, uh, it is a very, very tough sport for sure. Right, did anybody else have any, any thoughts on, on the sports? Yeah, sorry, brutal in terms of fighting. Yeah, water, water polo is one of these games because the water is so consistently churned. Uh, you know, people will hoof you uh, in the nuts. Uh, people will, you know, gouge you with their toenails. People will kick you in the stomach. Uh, I found it to be a really, uh, it's the most violent game I ever played. And I played rugby, in, for heaven's sakes. And so I found it uh, a really, really tough uh, tough sport and, and just really wasn't that satisfying. Uh, so I just didn't really, uh, I didn't really play it too long. Uh, somebody wrote, spots seem like a self-esteem thing to many people. Many people I know put a huge amount of value in someone's ability to compete well in sports. There's a lot of competitiveness and a need-to-win mentality. That's my experience of playing sports with others. i played for many years and I've been turned off it because so many people take competing in sports very, very seriously. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. I, I have a squash uh, league. Uh, I haven't done it for the last couple of years for a variety of reasons. But I have a squash league and I was thinking of going to join it. They actually have a sign-up in a, in a week or two. But, you know, I just, I really, really hate playing with those guys who, you know, they miss a shot and it's like, fuck, you know, and they, they hit the wall with their racket and stuff like that. I just, that stuff just makes me too tense. I just, I, I love playing sports and I, I even like competitive sports. But to me, the competition is, is around just excellence. It's not about winning. And uh, I just, I just can't, I can't play with those guys. Like, I couldn't play with the guys uh, who in golf, they would miss a shot and they just turn red and all. I just, that's. This is no fun, and that just seems to me very childish. And uh, so I just, uh, I try not to, uh, uh, to, I'm still mulling it over. I might go out and give it a shot, but uh, I much prefer playing with my wife than, than uh, other people because we both just have a great deal of fun. I should do kendo. No, I've never done any martial arts at all, actually. Um, oh, I shouldn't say that. Oh, it's not really a martial art. I did, uh, gosh, what was it, tai chi uh, in theater school. So, you know. 
how gay was that? It was actually very relaxing, very nice, but no, I've never done any martial arts at all. Uh, it's That's the kind of thing, like, I'm not going to put, in a sport, I'm not going to put the well-being of my body in the hands of somebody who really wants to get involved in hitting people as a sport. Like, I'm just not going to do that, if that makes any sense. Uh, that, to me, is just too big a risk. Uh, I just don't think there are a lot of philosophers in... Uh, martial arts. I think that, 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 that there's that kind of myth about martial arts that it's all philosophical and your the whole point is to avoid fights. But the people I've known in martial arts tend to be pretty lunatic and uh, really, really aggressive. I'm just not going to get involved in a sport with somebody like that uh, where the purpose is to throw or to hit me or whatever. I wish I'd, I wish I'd gotten a chance to try fencing though. I think that would have been a lot of fun, but uh, never did. Yeah, I still, uh, my, my, my sports at the moment, it's pretty sad. I mean, it's, it's walking, uh, weightlifting, and uh, I do 25 minutes on the bike machine every second day. Uh, that's just maintenance and health and all that kind of stuff, but uh, I really haven't had much chance to do, do sports. Uh, and, you know, when you, get, uh, when you get into philosophy, all sports seem kind of tame, right? <laughs> I mean, there's no more extreme sport than philosophy, so it all just seems pretty tame to, you know, knock balls around when you're actually, you know, reforging your soul from the very grim depths of your history and... It uh, doesn't seem quite so exciting to do the sports thing anymore. All right, well, I think we've milked that topic at least as much as I can. Uh, if you would like to, um, uh, if you'd like to bring up topics or comments, uh, that would be um, most excellent. Oh, and I also might be debating with a professor who is a uh, libertarian socialist, which I think will be a lot of fun. Hopefully, we can do the webcam thing, and we'll uh, I'll work with him beforehand to make sure he knows that the mute button is important. <laughs> so uh, hopefully we'll, uh, uh, we'll get that going soon. Do I remember correctly, uh, you were saying something about um, having a chat with DeMouse? Yeah, yeah. He, um, I've just, I finished reading two more chapters of his book. Uh, I'll release those this week. And uh, so, yeah, we're going to have a... Um, uh, we're gonna have a conversation this uh, this coming week. Cool. So that would be uh, that'd be very interesting. I mean, I've chatted with him a few times, but nothing particularly uh, important. Just a lot of some technical stuff about his book. But uh, I think that will be uh, that would be very interesting. All right, comments, questions, issues, uh, topic idea, Nietzsche. Yeah, I would. Uh, I would really like. There's there are so many, so many topics I'd like to do. So many, so many shows I'd like to do. Uh, but we have time. Of course, I am as yet a young man. I am only forty-two, at least for another ten days, eleven days. So um, yeah, I would like to do Nietzsche. I would like to do um, Schopenhauer. I'd like to do. Um, well, I mean, uh, uh, ah, so many, so many people I'd like to. Spinoza, I'd love to do Spinoza. There's so many people that I'd like to do. Oh. Now, there are some podcasts on Nietzsche. Uh, you can uh, go through the Philosophization to find them, so you can uh, go and check those out if you like. Hi, Steph. Hello. Hello. Hi. <laughs> um, I wanted to just chime in and just kind of mention... Um, the book, The Drama of the Gifted Child. Mm. Real quick. <laughs> I, I've been thrown into therapy pretty uh, intensely 
and I'm making. Sorry, what do you mean of... thrown into therapy? Like did they kidnap you? <laughs> like a, a sack over your head yeah. or something? You will now be healed. I did. <laughs> I did it to myself. Excellent. I don't know. I, I guess I would say that I'm entering a new phase of therapy. Right. And it's it's been really informative and exciting and very. It's a lot of thrashing about <laughs> with emotions. <laughs> And, um, and since I've been able to use the drama with, with that, like to enhance my therapy, um, it's just, it's really intensifying everything. Um, cause it's like, um, with the book, I'm unlocking a lot of, a lot of, um, knowledge on narcissism. And I think that was one of the biggest reasons why I had resistance to the book it's such a small book. So it's not like a daunting book, but when you start reading it and you know that you have problems with narcissism, you're kind of calling yourself out (laughs) like right away. Right. So that was, it was just my experience and I finally was able to open the book and I was finally able to read it and listen. And, um, I'm just making really great progress in therapy and I wanted to thank you. Oh, yeah. Well, be sure, you know, if you get a chance, uh, drop her a line. I'm sure she would appreciate hearing uh, hearing that as well. It is, uh, yeah, Alice Miller is uh, is a fantastic, fantastic writer for those who don't uh, know. She is, um, I think she's a psychologist, and um, uh, Alice-Miller.com is her website. Uh, uh, you, you can dip into any of her books and get, uh, uh, get just amazing things uh, out of it. And, uh, you know, someone gave me, uh, a woman I was dating at the time, many, many years ago, gave me a copy of the drama of The Gifted Child, and I completely misunderstood <laughs> what she meant, because I thought it was about, if you're a gifted child, you're going to be a drama queen, uh, and I can't really say that that may have been inapplicable, because I got offended, so it probably was applicable, but that's what I thought it was like about, you know, like, if you're a gifted child, you're going to be hysterical, and, and again, maybe that was uh, not entirely out of the... Uh, context of my life at the time but uh, I just you know she's she's a she had like a warm bath massage in the brain you know she's very gentle very perceptive and uh, I mean she's got this bit of just things that I mean just blow my mind and uh, she's got this bit where she talks about I think it's in drama she talks about Henry Moore is is that right is that at the beginning of drama for gifted child the sculptor anyway Henry Moore yeah, yeah Henry Henry Moore he creates these sculptures where uh, you know, the women's uh, 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 feet and, and, and hips and so on are huge and their heads and arms are tiny and small and so on. And uh, at one point in his autobiography, and I think Alice Miller was the only person who picked up on this, uh, she talks about how he used to have to rub oil into his mother's legs because I think she had arthritis or, or something like that. And uh, she says, if you think about it, you know, how would a woman look to a small boy rubbing ointment into his mother's legs? Well, the feet and the hips would be huge and the head and the arms would be tiny. Uh, and if you look at uh, Henry Moore sculptures, and you can find pictures of them online, they're, I've never found them particularly attractive. But I'm I'm really old school when it comes to sculpture. I'm like Michelangelo's David and stuff like that works for me. Uh, and, you know, blobby Picasso, Henry Moore stuff just does not. But um, uh, it, so she, she just, you know, keys in on these things. And uh, if you only read one thing of hers, and for heaven's sakes, read as much as you can of hers, uh, she has a chapter on uh, Heinrich Heine, uh, who is uh, a German writer, and uh, I, I just found that to be a, 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 ex- exquisitely uh, done. Uh, the, her stuff on poisonous pedagogy is fantastic as well. Her stuff on Hitler is, uh, I mean, you know, she's, she really does 
try to get into evil, into the head of evil, and uh, understand its origins, which is certainly something that I've uh, tried in my own, you know, <laughs> to varying degrees of success ways. Uh, but uh, she is uh, somebody who, uh, you know, will regularly blow your mind to new heights from which it will never climb down. And uh, just I can't, uh, just can't recommend her enough uh, as far as that goes. I mean, she's not a philosopher, uh, and that holds all the strengths and weaknesses of that. So, you know, I mean, obviously there are some caveats, but uh, she is a, a fantastic person to read just to um, to get those those goosebumpy prickles of insight about other people and, and then about yourself. And I think that is uh, uh, it's just fantastic, fantastic stuff uh, to, to work on. Yeah, I posted a couple of uh, links to a couple of articles. I'd like to write to her and ask her if I can read some articles of hers that are on the web. Uh, as podcasts, uh, but uh, we'll we'll see if that uh, if she'll. I don't want to read her stuff without her permission because it says not to, and I want to respect that. But uh, uh, she is, uh, uh, and and she and she and Damas have been colleagues for quite some time, and uh, so uh, that's another reason why uh, I put some some additional credence in in his work. Though of course I'm not not competent to to judge his scholarship, but uh, he certainly has footnotes aplenty, and he's uh, well educated, so that uh, works for me. So, but sorry. Uh, Speaking of narcissism, I ended up talking about myself uh, while you were talking about your therapy. So would you like to get back to that or is it too late? <laughs> um, I guess that's fine. Uh, but there was, there was one thing that I noticed that's majorly different when it comes to getting things intellectually and emotionally at the same time for the first time. It's, it's just like a tidal wave of like, oh my God, I remember that I was there or like, especially when I'm combing through memories, you can get a memory intellectually and you can get it emotionally. But when you get it at the same time, it's like you're revisiting the experience all over again and you are becoming closer and closer to the person that you want to empathize with, that you want to kind of um, connect with the person from your past, um, yourself. <laughs> um, tell me what, sorry, didn't tell me, just I want to make sure I understand what you mean by that. If you could just uh, explain it a bit more. Sure. Like, um, I have, I have particular memories of particular abuse and there would be moments when I would be able to explain exactly what happened in therapy without really having an emotional response. And then there would be times in therapy, maybe weeks later, where I would finally get the emotional aspect of it. But after reading the drama, like after reading a little bit more each week, it was like I got this ability to kind of, the way I describe it is superimposing one experience on top of another. Like your, your, your present experiences that mimic the ones from your past and instead of just being able to relate these these current experiences to the ones that happened in your past you can actually see them on top of one another and you can see like say i'm, I'm having an issue with my mom. like i had an issue that reminded me of something that happened with my mom i can like put both situations and experiences on top of one another in my mind and i can differentiate and that helps me kind of like get it emotionally and intellectually at the same time. Right. I right. No, I, I think I understand. The metaphor that just popped into my head is uh, it, it's the difference between looking up 
at the night sky and just seeing a bunch of stars, which are like our memories, versus looking up into the night sky and seeing constellations, right? Which is where they're joined together in shapes that make sense. And and that uh, and she's very yeah she's very very big on on uh, you know the, the shattered self or there's a, a Sheingold I think calls it the um, uh, soul murder right where the the fragmentation of the personality as the result uh, as the result of abuse is is so fundamental that 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 the person simply dissociates from dissociated state to dissociated state and there's no joining between anything. Uh, and uh, everything is momentary. So when they're really angry, they're enraged, and then they forget about it. And it's it's very, in a sense, it's very childlike. Like uh, Isabella bangs her head uh, occasionally, and uh, uh, she'll cry, and then like within a minute later, she can be smiling again, right? I mean, it's that. Uh, it's not because I mean it's just because her brain is still developing and all that. Um, but I th- I think I mean I'm no psychologist, but Alice Miller seems to really really focus on, on uh, looking for the patterns, looking for the continuities, looking for the similarities in the present that have grown out of the past. And if you can't see those, you can't change the present, right? Because you are forever battling a current that you can't see. That, yes, the patterns, yeah, they reveal the current. And yeah, exactly. So you can see the connection. And, and um, it's, I used to think it was like, I don't know. I I just find it so very, it's amazing. It felt like, felt a little magical in a way because you're feeling emotions that you weren't allowed to and you feel them so naturally because they were there from the beginning. They were your emotions. Like she talks about, she talks about the, the killing of, the killing off of like, the desires that children have of just wanting to either be useful or just to, to mimic their parents in a healthy way. And parents screw with that. They take that away from a child. They, they just cart it off as being either selfish or, or, um, silly. Like there is, there's a little excerpt in there about, um, about a child wanting wanting to partake in eating an ice cream cone that his, his parents were eating. They were just treating him like, oh, you really want that ice cream cone, don't you? Oh, oh, it's a little too big for you. Oh, you're so sweet. You're so small. It's too cold for you, you know, and it's just... Yeah, that's from yeah, Alice too, right? Yeah, I was that kid. I remember that. And, and it happens everywhere. Yes. It's it's just parents, they weren't allowed to, they weren't given the ice cream when they, when they were little. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. It is, uh, I, I'm continually trying to remind myself that Isabella is huge to Isabella. Like, she's tiny to me, right? But she's huge. Her passions, her, her thoughts, her feelings, well, not thoughts quite yet, but her feelings are, and her desires and her likes and her dislikes are huge to her, right? So if I feed her, we, you know, we try new food, and if I feed her something and she gives me that fine misty spray of rejection, you know, it sprays it all over the place, that she really doesn't like it. And it's not like a cute little thing like, oh, you didn't like the food, right? Like, she really doesn't like the food. She doesn't want to eat it. She has no power to go and get her own food. She's helpless because she has to just basically eat what we put in her mouth. Uh, and so uh, to, to remember that, that that's really important to her and to try and enhance her sense of, of power uh, at every opportunity, right? Because uh, there's so much for her that is diminishing her sense of power. Right. I mean, she can't control her bowels. She can't um, control. She's she can stand up. And today she just 
stood for the first time without, you know, without using her, her arms to hold on. But, you know, she, she can't climb stairs. She can't uh, get in and out of her car seat. She can't uh, leave the house. She can't open a door. So uh, I'm really, really trying to enhance um, whatever I can do to help her feel more powerful, right? So I can give her something like she, today she was uh, playing on the kitchen floor and she was pushing and pulling her, um, the, the chair that we feed her in, her high chair. Uh, and I mean, that had to be pretty cool. That'd be, that'd be like you and I pushing and pulling a building, right? Cause it, it literally is like five times higher than she is. Right. Uh, and it's enormous to her, but she can pull it and push it back and forth. And she's actually pretty strong. And I, I, and a part of me was like, well, if she tries to lift herself up, it might roll and she might fall. But I thought, but she's really enjoying what an amazing thing it must be for her who is struggling for every stra- scrap of feeling of efficacy to be able to move something huge. Uh, it's fantastic. And so to really encourage her to, to be able to do those things that grant her power, that grant her size, that grant her efficacy. Um, that's one of the reasons why I started, uh, uh, exercising her legs very early so that she could start walking early or she could start crawling early. And that worked out very well. She's been way ahead on those things just to give her a sense of, of power and control. Uh, because you know, she has to fight so hard to get those things. I really want to enhance that wherever possible. And yeah, I think a lot of parents do uh, view their kids as, as small and cute and their feelings or passions as inconsequential. You know, the kid gets angry and, oh, he's just having a tantrum as opposed to that anger is very real for that child and very important. And children, I remember when I was in theater school, someone said, a teacher said, you know, we're doing one of her exercises, play like children do, play seriously. And I thought that was a wonderful statement it stuck with me for years. And that's, you know, Isabella, it is play, but it's also very, very serious exploration. Christina was folding laundry the other day. Isabella grabbed the clothes and started trying to help. I mean, they, she, she really wants to engage and, and get involved in the family. And uh, you can look at that as cute and unhelpful, but I think it's, it's a wonderful thing that she, she wants to, to help and get involved and to, to model what she does uh, after her parents. Absolutely. I, I see that every day because I work at a grocery store. And... The grocery store is is just another example of everyday parents and children um, being in the same space, but not being able to work together. <laughs> like most of the time, I don't see parents allowing the children get involved in this really, really necessary experience. Anyway, um, so I'll be on my line and the children will, the first thing the children do is want to help me. They want to put, get groceries out of the cart. They want to put it up on my counter. And when I realized that was the, that was like, this is the only opportunity that I have in such an environment to be an enlightened witness to those desires and to that, to that very, um, ability that I have to like allow that around their parents. It's really difficult for, for me to watch when the parents don't take that seriously, when the kids want to help. Sorry. And then the parents will complain if the kids get bored and act up, right? It's like you can't participate, but you can't be bored. It's like, well, you know, pick one, right? Yeah. It's so entirely frustrating. Um, but I'm coming to a point where, you know, it used to bother me more so. Like, I used to want to do something. I used to be really upset. But it's my opportunity to to nurture their needs just for that five-minute interaction. Because I think they'll keep coming back and they'll remember that 
there is somebody who, who understands that is important. Yeah, um, oh, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, I think I think those are those are really really great things to see, and and part of uh, self actualization is seeing uh, more of the dysfunction in the world, right? You know, my experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is my experience has been that when I was more dysfunctional, the world seemed normal, right? And as you become, um, you know, more authentic, uh, you 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 hang on to whatever scraps of wisdom you've developed. You develop empathy for yourself and others. Then you you see a different world than other people do, right? I mean, you just see. A different world than other people do and to me it's the difference between you know like a primitive person thinking that ghosts live in trees and a biologist looking at you know the multicellular bark-skinned organism that a tree is uh, it is uh, it is a different world that you look at when you become more functional uh, and people who are less functional they don't see it and they think you're crazy and they think that you're just oh you know you see all these bad things and you know it's it's your projection or whatever but as you become you know, more function. It's like if you become taller, everybody starts to look shorter. It's it's just natural, right? Yeah, I think that I've gained credibility at work because I came in a little bit, like knowing that the world is a little, it's like a lot different than me at this point because I'm in therapy and I'm intensely examining my relationships every day. So the people I work with, they were kind of, weirded out by me at first, I think, because I'm obviously for reasons I just explained, but because, um, because of the interactions I have with children, that's how I gain my credibility around them. And I see them treating children differently too. It's, I mean, I really, I really think that one person can, can rub off on another like that. But when you can feel like all this dysfunction and look at a child and smile genuinely and enthusiastically and authentically, they pick up on it and their eyes start sparkling. And the ones that, that can't are sadly on their way to being broken. And it's, you know, I don't see too many of them, but when I do, it's sad. Well, but there's there's more than one exit off that highway, right? I mean, it's not, it's not just a one-time thing, right? It's not like, well, the kid who doesn't smile back when he's eight is doomed, right? I mean, there are lots of exits. I mean, I agree, the chance is less, but there are lots of exits. You never know, right? 20, 25, 30, 50, 90, right? Uh, there, there could be something that, that wakes wakes that person up from, from their, you know, as Khan said, to wake, wake people up from their dogmatic slumber. Um, uh, is uh, it, it's not it's not an all or nothing one time proposition. I mean, I think there are moments that are very very key uh, where it's one way right. or the other. But I don't think uh, I don't think there's just one exit off the highway. <laughs> right, because I am not the world. Like it's just one interaction they have with the lady at the grocery store. Yeah, but um. Well, and also it's part of the empathy too. Sorry to interrupt, but if you think of somebody, somebody may have smiled at you when you were that age and you were having a particularly rough day with your family and you may not have smiled back, but you still found your exit off the highway, right? Oh, that's true. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, because I, I don't know. What, I think I, I think a child's like crying or or throwing something at me would be my only <laughs> reason not to continue like engaging in a friendly way without and then why continue engaging because you, you probably know that they're attaining some kind of positivity from it right right so so yeah uh, but but I think you and I had similar moms and the narcissism I think that we can 
uh, or at least we had similar experiences through our mothers. So I just, I just wanted to share that the narcissism uh, thing. <laughs> no, I, 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 and I really appreciate that. I really do appreciate that. Um, it, it, I, and again, we're just using these terms, you know, in an amateur sense, but my, what I sort of learned in my twenties, if this, if this helps you at all, and uh, you know, one person's experience is, 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 you know, impossible to replicate, but it's just what, what I sort of learned in my twenties. I've read a book and I, I, I wish I could, it was one of the biggest books that influenced me as far as self-knowledge went. And, um, I can't remember the title of it for the life of me. It had a disturbing painting on the cover, uh, on the cover, uh, when will it stop? And it was really, you know, distorted and, and ugly and violent imagery. And it was about, it was about child abuse. And I'd never really particularly read about, uh, about this, this topic in depth before. And this was in my mid twenties, I think. And the chapter that really got me in that book was when the writer, and it was a woman, the writer was, was, uh, the, the chapter was about war and the writer, I'm going to paraphrase the argument, but the writer wrote that, uh, severe child abuse, significant child abuse is worse than combat in, in war, because if you come from a healthy background and you end up in war, the traumas are being inflicted upon a healthy pre-existing personality and brain structure. Whereas if you go through significant trauma as a child, if you're abused as a child, that is actually forming your brain and your body and your personality. So it's not something that is, uh, there's no original self that it's Im impacting on like war on an adult, but it is actually being formed in, in the process of, of the harm that's being done to you. And that, that blew my mind. That, like, my, my, that's when my hair left, right? Then, like, the whole top opened up and it, it just blew my mind because, I mean, I found it unarguable, right? I mean, which is not, I mean, it's not to say that, that you know, a, all bad childhoods are worse than all combat experiences or whatever, but that basic principle that uh, traumatic childhoods form the personality, distort the personality, change the brain structure, as, as we've seen from some of the research that people have posted on, on FDR, at least there's strong evidence for that. But that I had gone through a, 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 an experience as a child worse in terms of its effects on the personality than, than war was, I mean, it, my narcissism was optimism. You know, my narcissism was minimizing my own experiences and maximizing the health of, of those around me. If that, if that makes, that, that was my sort of narcissistic preference. And I mean, the reason that I did that is that I think, you know, in hindsight, uh, the reason that I did that was that when you actually do start to process your own trauma and your, your own history, the, the coldness of some of the people around you becomes quite evident if they haven't processed or distinctly don't want to process anything bad that happened to them. The reason that you minimize your own history is because otherwise it will expose some of the coldness and re-inflict some trauma, the coldness of those around you. At least that was my, uh, experience. So, um, my narcissism was a kind of minimization of my own uh, pain and my own experiences and a maximization of the health of those around me. And that was, uh, um, that was, that was very tough to, uh, to change. Oh dear, I think I, um, I, think I put her to sleep. No. I'm very good um, at that now. Uh, I wanted to say how quickly I understood that um, 
because obviously, I mean, I used to look at it like this was my, this was the use that the parent gave to the child was to be, um, to need nothing, to want for nothing. I mean, to want nothing, basically. But, I mean, it's instead of looking at it, looking at it as a job to be the child that wants nothing, it was more like, I, uh, it's more like the child is the extension of the killed desires inside of the parent themselves as a child. Um, does that make any sense? <laughs> well, if I understand what you mean, you're saying that it, it could be possible that the parent is suppressing the desires of the child because the parent is suppressing his or her own desires formally, right? Right. Uh, right, right. But it's one of those things, like, I get that, that feeling that it may seem so simple to somebody, but to me it's so important because I, get, I finally get it. Like, I get it in 3D, not just, I don't know, I sound silly. No, um, no, you don't sound but, silly at all. It, it, is, it is IMAX compared to, you know, watching it on a little nano, right? <laughs> it really is. Um, and I, I mean, I for one, I can hear the difference in your voice. I mean, just just in case that that is of use to you. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, when did you first drop by? Was it a year and a half ago? Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah, about like a year and a half ago. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, your um, uh, your uh, your speaking tone is much more relaxed. Uh, it's more measured. You're still doing a little bit of I sound silly or whatever when you're, I think, among people who who really do get it and would never think that in a million years. But uh, you are much more relaxed in your communication. I mean, you 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 were a little frantic, you know, at the beginning, right, in terms of your communication. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's much more relaxed. It's much more communicative. It's much more um, clear, if that makes sense. That's awesome. Thank you so much for pointing that out. Oh, it's a, it's not a, I mean, it's a privilege my, to I see it. Not only that rocks. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It, in fact, does rock uh, significantly and conspicuously. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm uh, like, 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 I feel like I have more of a connection to the world. Even if, even really examining myself and I'm really actually in the best relationship of my life with myself right now, even though having, you know, I have difficulty in some areas, but I rely heavily on my therapy. And I mean, I had, I have to say, I've, I've been in therapy since I was seven years old, but I never got it until FDR came into my life. Sorry, until so, when? Until I started, uh, you know, inter interacting with you guys at FDR. Well, I mean, I, I think that's a huge honor for everybody who's interacted with you. Um, it certainly is uh, in the times that you and I have interacted. It's it's an immense privilege to see, um, you know, where you, where you came from and where you are, and of course, you know, the anticipation of where you're going. It's a, it's I mean, it's a real honor. It's a real privilege. I mean, I get to see this a lot, and it is. You know, it's what uh, it what keeps me going in the face of of challenges and difficulties. Uh, it is just the amazing, amazing progress that people make when you know self knowledge is combined with moral clarity, is combined with genuine empathy and curiosity and sympathy. And I mean, it really is uh, a nutrient to a very starved soil in our souls. And I think that's just a wonderful thing to to see. Yeah, I mean, 
I, I could do I could do a commercial for FDR, my before and after photos. Honestly, <laughs> right. I, right. I used to right. have horrible acne, and it's all clearing up due to my emancipation from bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> emancipation from bullshit. Yeah, no, that's that's a good way to put it, right? I mean, it's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> so, thanks. Fantastic. And it's always a pleasure popping in and talking to you. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate you always bring up these fantastic topics. And, of course, I'm perfectly delighted to, uh, you know, when I think of, you know, you are hiding in a corner of your original house, uh, typing away, uh, and your ex was uh, sleeping and grumbling. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's just worlds away. It is an, an amazing, amazing thing. And, you know, this is another thing. It takes, it takes time. It takes therapy. It takes reading. It takes journaling. It takes taking yourself seriously uh, and, and being, uh, you know, getting into safe, uh, safe uh, relationships and environments. It takes all of those things and it takes it takes a long time. I mean, eighteen months is is not a short slice of life, and uh, so I just you know congratulations. It's it's perfectly magnificent to see the work that you're doing. Um, congratulations to your therapist. Congratulations in particular to you, and uh, it's uh, it's just fantastic and inspirational. It moves me more than I can I can say. So thank you and thank you for the the honesty and openness that that you've brought to to what what we're doing here. So thank you. Thank you. Tim. All right. We have time for one more comment slash question slash revelation, whatever you like. Can I talk about little Eichmanns? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure what you mean. Ward Churchill. Why do I think that's an academic who got in trouble over 9-11? Am I completely wrong about that? That's the guy. Yeah, I'm, I, I mean, I don't know enough about Ward Churchill, so I'd have to sort of research it some more. Uh, he was mentioned, I think, on the Harry Brown Show. I read some of his stuff, and uh, he was critical of U.S. foreign policy uh, and its effect on radical elements in the Islamic world and in other countries, and basically said, uh, we're continuing the same pattern that brought us 9-11 by going around invading other countries rather than looking in the mirror and saying, what have we done to provoke this? But... Um, Oh, yeah, the little Eichmanns. Oh, yes. Okay, let, and then the guy who's typing this, remember, tell me if I got this right or wrong, because I'm, I'm, I'm reaching deep down into the uh, gunny sack of my memory uh, system. But uh, he's, did he not say that some of the people in the towers um, brought, brought about the planes that flew into them because they were little Eichmanns uh, in terms of uh, uh, running the finances of the empire, uh, in the same way that Eichmann didn't drop any Zyklon B capsules into any Jewish showers, quote, showers, but that, that these people are uh, in the World Trade Center are, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, running the, uh, the finances of the empire, which drives the wars, and therefore they, they have some moral culpability uh, because without them the empire couldn't work, and uh, therefore they have some moral culpability and they're not entirely innocent in the resulting violence that comes back. Now tell me if that's, this is way, way uh, up the past. Is that what he meant? Uh, that's what he said, right? Yeah, and he uh, obviously got, uh, he got in some real trouble for that. And um, I think that, uh, uh, I, I personally would not go to, to Eichmann as a metaphor for those people uh, by any, any stretch of the imagination. And I think, oh, sorry, I got dropped from my own call. Uh, I think that, 
it's reaching too far, uh, and I think entirely unjustly, and way too far, like like a million miles too far. Because I think that uh, Eichmann uh, was of, uh, high up in the Nazi, uh, like Hess, uh, high up in the Nazi regime. Uh, they had a stated policy of genocide. They were involved in open war against uh, a, a variety of other countries. And, uh, you know, Hitler was a chew, chew the carpet complete lunatic. And um, so I, th- I think that, that you could not look at people running finances in the World Trade Center and say that they would be analogous to, to Eichmann uh, in the Nazi uh, regime. I mean, it's, you know, he, he signed documents, you know, people died, uh, you know, he planned and uh, was, was integral to the, the final solution, the, the, the Holocaust, the genocide against the Jews and the um, homosexuals and the atheists and the others and so on. So uh, I just, you know, there aren't people in the World Trade Center assigning death orders for 100,000 people. I, I just, I think that that's not uh, a viable uh, analogy or alternative. And I think it's alienating. I think what he's trying to get at, I think what he's trying to get at, uh, yeah, little Eichmanns, I, but I still think it's, uh, uh, it's too far. Uh, I think it's too far to go. That having been said, I think that if you are running... Um, finances for the empire of the United States, um, you have to have some idea what's going on. I mean, you have to. I mean, or if you don't, then, I, I, you know, ignorance of, of the results of your actions, when they're that obvious, are no excuse, right? Like, if I sneeze and cause a hurricane in Jakarta, then, I mean, I can be excused for not feeling bad. But when, uh, when things are, uh, when you are running an empire that is being used to fund a war, when you're running an empire that's being used to put future generations into debt, when you're running an empire that's being used to, to um, you know, fund covert, ghastly operations and extraordinary renditions all over the world, uh, and, and your efforts are being prop- put into maintaining that financial system and, and manipulating that financial system for profit, um, I think... Uh, I think that uh, it's important for people to to get some sense of the effects of their actions in the long run, uh, and that money doesn't magically come from nothing. And um, particularly with the fiat currency and all the stuff that is going on, I think is uh, I, I think we need to become aware of the effects of our actions. Does that mean that we use analogies like Little Eichmanns? I don't think that's fair. And uh, I, I think that what we need to do is just continue to educate people about. Um, uh, about the effects of status policies like fiat currency and, and uh, wars and uh, uh, empires and uh, imperialism and so on. Uh, and, and I think that that will come about. I, I think putting, uh, putting the argument so far ahead in the metaphor sphere that it just turns people off, I think, discredits what you're trying to say. And I think that's, uh, that's a mistake. But it is my understanding, and it is not a very deep understanding by any stretch of the imagination, but it's my understanding that, um, I mean, this is the ironic and, and ghastly thing, right, about, you know, they say the victors write the history, right? And if you look at the Nuremberg trials, there were a number of principles that, of course, have been completely reversed now that the Americans are certainly dipping their toes in that kind of empire and that kind of evil, the American government, I mean, the first is that uh, it was the people at the top who were prosecuted, not the soldiers, right? It was the people who gave the orders, the people at the very top who signed the policies, who, who provided the orders that resulted in um, uh, breakages of the, of the Geneva Convention, to say the least. It was those people who were prosecuted, not the rank and file. Now, of course, you see with the torture memos and uh, Bush and Rumsfeld and um, all those guys, 
uh, it is the rank and file who are punished, and the people at the top get pensions and book tours and speaking contracts and so on. So uh, that, of course, is completely reversed, right? So when they had won against the Germans, uh, they let off the rank and file and they punished the German leaders. And now that they're doing some things that are not entirely off that spectrum, it's the rank and file who are punished and the leaders who get away scot-free. And uh, that, of course, is one thing. The other thing is that at Nuremberg, the you you had to really work to prove that you didn't know something. And uh, there was this general, uh, and again, I'm, not, I'm no expert on this, and, and if you ever want to, there's a film with Spencer Tracy and a very young William Shatner called Judgment Nuremberg that's well worth watching. And he has this conversation with, with a German couple, just you know, average people, right? It's like, well, how could you not know? And, and you know, and so on, right? The average German uh, probably didn't know. But uh, certainly higher up in the, uh, uh, in the leadership to say, well, I had no idea that these concentration camps were going on. I had no idea that the prisoners of war were mistreated. I had no idea we tortured. I had no idea we broke the Geneva Convention. It, the default position was that you did know and you had to really prove that you didn't. And um, that, I think, is something that if we take as a principle that you're responsible for knowing the effects of the environment that you're in and the, the, uh, the job that you have, then, you know, I, I think if, uh, if people get off not being quite so unblemished when it comes to the financial manipulations that the empire needs to do what it does. So um, I hope that that's a, a, some help. And I, I don't claim to be an expert on Nuremberg or Ward Churchill or Germany, but those are things that I've sort of seen and read that, that may may have some some use. Education is key. Education is key. Education is key. I mean, the only people I really get angry at are the people who, you know, who, who have the values and then betray them, right? Who publicly state the values and then betray them, right? Those are the people I get angry at. The people who don't know, who genuinely don't know, them, to me, they're kind of in a state of nature. You know, it's like a, you know, like a puppy chewing your shoe, right? I mean, it's like, it's a state of nature. It's not moral or immoral. It is pre-knowledge, right? Any more than Isabella can be moral or immoral, right? Um, and this is one of the reasons why people resist knowledge, is that with knowledge comes responsibility. With knowledge comes moral culpability. This is why people resist the spread of philosophy. Because once you know, then you're morally responsible. You can no longer go straight back into the gas bag fog of, I didn't know. And this is why people can be very hostile to things like UPB, to things of, 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 of distinct and clear moral clarity. They can get very angry at it. Very angry. Right? I mean, the parents who are nice in public and uh, hurt their kids uh, terribly in, in private. Well, they know because they have the ideals already, right? I mean, Whitney Houston sings about how great children are and how you should treat them like precious little gods, which is true. And then what? Drug addictions, Bobby Brown. I mean, her kids are probably a mess. I don't know, right? But, but they have the values and then they don't. Those are the people who, for better or worse, make me angry. Uh, or the people who reject knowledge that is clear and obvious. But uh, to me, the people who've never heard taxation is force and they've never heard of the empire, they don't know the 30 million people that the American empire has killed, they, don't, they just don't know. Well, uh, to me, they're not responsible. And I, you know, how many people knew what in the World Trade Center? I mean, there's no way to know that. So I think that there's no way to, uh, to make those kinds of judgments, if that makes any sense. But it's, it's why people are drawn back to the same nonsense sources that they always are, right? It's why people who are, you know, right-wing Republican people go to Fox all the time. It's why libertarians go to libertarian sites all the time. Uh, it, it is, uh, you know, people, and it's, it's a complete truism and nothing particularly insightful, but people uh, have opinions and then they seek reinforcement of those opinions. And uh, patriots do not like to look at the dark side of whatever country they're in. It's not we pick on America, but it's just about every country. 
Uh, they just don't like to look at the other side. They don't like to look at that which undermines their belief system. Because for most people, and I, I mean, I count myself as among this number for many years of my life, for most people, when, you know, the, the belief structure is not based on fundamental principles, reason, and evidence. And therefore, if any part of it comes down, the whole thing comes down. Like, why, why was I an objectivist ethicist for so long? Because, you know, if I really began to examine, and it was really only my late 20s, no, it was actually my, it was in my mid-20s when I really began to, to start to look more critically at, but that was like eight, eight years after I started reading, and no, more. It doesn't matter, a long time, a long time before I started looking at it, because I sort of felt, well, if objectivist ethics falls down, then what happens, right? I mean, does the whole thing come crumbling? It was really scary to, to face that possibility. And uh, so it is really hard, which is why, you know, I've tried to do as much work as, uh, as possible to get people accelerated to a place of, of confidence in, in basic principles, ethics, virtue, reason, evidence, and so on. Um, so that uh, we can be critical without feeling like the whole house of cards is going to come down, that we can criticize uh, you know, propositions and arguments without feeling like we're going to just be blown into some postmodernist uh, contradictory set of atoms. And, uh, uh, yeah, I think with, <laughs> with some degree of success. Oh, yeah. Guys, don't forget to donate. Yes, please. Absolutely. And, and I really am sorry that my show production has dropped off a little uh, I have been uh, uh, entirely absorbed in a variety of things, so I do apologize for that. Oh, somebody said, can I ask a question, if I may? And then, they, what do you think? What do you think it could be a fair balance between being a total quid pro quo individualist, always asking something in exchange for something, and being a total collectivist or socialist? That is a good question. Fair balance between a total quid pro quo individualist I'm being a total collectivist. Well, I mean, just off the top of my head, uh, a brief response that I would give give to that would be that, that the difference is love. The difference is is uh, is love. Um, you know, love requires deep knowledge of both self and other. Right? You have to know yourself. Uh, and you have to, you know, have overcome your barriers to basic virtues and honesty, integrity, and so on, courage. You have to have deep knowledge of yourself, and you have to have deep knowledge of another person. And that takes time. That takes a long time, and is an ever-growing and ever-deepening process. And so, you know, in in my marriage, I don't. It's not quid pro quo, right? It's not. Well, I did the dishes, and so you give me a foot rub or whatever, right? I mean, it is just do for the other, right? And uh, it's not. It's not a debt that accumulates. It is a genuine pleasure. It is an ever-escalating generosity that is mutual. But that's love, right? And the problem with, with socialism is that you're supposed to have that kind of intimacy with everybody, which is completely impossible. Uh, and so uh, I would say that the degree of intimacy is the degree where you drop the quid pro quo. And the uh, degree of... Um, uh, of non-intimacy is is where you would have more quid pro quo. Which sort of my, now, of course, where you get a lot of, uh, you know, where you have a relationship, even in business, where quid pro quo works really well, then you can develop a more sort of friendly and relaxed. But, you know, that would be sort of my suggestion. Uh, somebody said, Steph, how do you feel about grad school? I can't decide if I want to go after I get my bachelor's. I know you've done it. I was curious to any insights you might have. I loved grad school. I loved, I loved, I loved, I loved grad school. 
completely and totally and utterly. And uh, so I would, uh, you know, if you can do it, uh, I would strongly, strongly recommend it. Um, I was there, and all told, uh, a year uh, and a bit, a uh, year and some. And I, I mean, as far as academically, as far as academics went, uh, it was by far the best year of my entire education because it was so, so very largely self-directed. So uh, if, you, if you have something that you want to study, if you have something that you want to work on, if you have something that you really want to, you have a yearning burning to prove, and I had this you know, master's thesis that I've been thinking about for years that I really, really wanted to work on, um, it, was, uh, it, was just, it was just fantastic. To, 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 I had a desk in the library. I had only a couple of hours of classes a week. Uh, I, had, uh, uh, I, I could just, just completely immerse myself in great philosophical works throughout history for, you know, 15, 16 months. I mean, it was just fantastic. I mean, you say, well, why can't you do that anyway? Well, it's tough, you know, you got a job and commute and, you know, tired and, right. So I, I would, you know, highly recommend uh, grad school if, you know, you can do something that's, uh, that's uh, more self-directed. So um, I, I hope that uh, that helps. And, you know, it's uh, it's not a bad idea to to do grad school uh, in a recession, right? I mean, it 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 ups your marketability when you get out and uh, differentiates you from the you know the general BA horde or BSc horde or whatever you've got, and uh, it's uh, you know it's not a bad place to hide out and uh, and learn about yourself. Uh, plus, you know, you can get free therapy when you're in school. At least most schools will, most universities will give you free therapy. That is, uh, uh, I mean, that's a that's a goldmine, I would suggest. So. Uh, so yeah, I, I I highly recommend it. You know, the times uh, there've been there've been two two times in my life where I've really had a chance to take off and just work on something that I've really loved. Uh, and the one is grad school, and the other is uh, after uh, the second sale of the business I co-founded, uh, I took uh, a year and a half, uh, almost two years off, to work on uh, uh, fiction writing, and uh, uh, that was uh, uh, was just fantastic. So. Uh, highly recommended if you can be self-directed. Uh, at least that was my experience, and uh, so I, I'm very, very, very glad that I did it. And uh, and I think you know, did it help as far as FDR goes? It certainly did help as far as you know, having some grasp of better grasp of philosophy and having a chance to really think through some of these issues. Um, I, I don't I don't think that anyone believes me because I have a master's. I mean, I, I certainly don't think I've ever said, well, I'm right because I have a master's. I think that's not the case. I don't think it hurts. Uh, but, uh, uh, it, it really was, uh, it did turn out to be, you know, if you sort of look in hindsight, it's like everything was preparing me for this in a weird kind of way. Obviously, uh, it was, uh, a Vishnu's plan for me. You are very welcome. I hope that, uh, uh, I hope that it helps. Now it is of course different. Um, uh, it is different, uh, in Canada because grad school, I mean, I did go into debt, uh, to go to grad school. Uh, and I, but I, I worked for a year and a half. Uh, to, to save up for grad school, and I got into debt a little bit, though I was living ridiculously cheaply. <laughs> That's the year that I lived with uh, uh, five, five roommates in one house. <laughs> Beautiful house, four gay guys and a lesbian. It was just immaculate, spotless, and, uh, and uh, they had great music. But, uh... All right. Last question, last comment, last issue. Got a question. What do you say to the anxiety that comes about from knowing that there's always a small chance of being wrong, no matter how certain current conclusions seem, like the contradictions I hate most of those I don't know about. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a great question, too. 
um, what do you say to the anxiety that comes about from knowing that there's a small chance of being wrong? Well, the first is that I don't think you can ever get rid of that. Um, uh, I, I don't think I've ever said UPB is a done deal. Absolutely, completely, and finally, it is the answer to, to ethics. Um, I don't think I've ever said that. Uh, I've always said, certainly in the book, I'm very tentative. And afterwards, I've always said, well, it seems to be doing well. I think it's, I think it's a good proof. I think it's done. But I mean, I'm not going to say uh, absolutely. Um, so, so the first thing I would say is don't get rid of that anxiety. Right? Don't, don't view it as something that is fundamental to be erased. Um, uh, there's a book by Paul Johnson called Modern Times. Uh, and it's a, it's a huge book, though he is a fantastic writer, and it's really, really uh, a good book to read. It's a history of the 20th century, um, and he is uh, he's pretty libertarian, uh, so it's really, really a good read. And he talks about something at the very beginning, uh, which is uh, Einstein's test for his uh, theory of relativity, the degree to which starlight is going to bend in a gravity well, which was tested in an eclipse um, somewhere in the 19, early, 19, early 20th century. And compared to the ideologies that were running rampant, right, communism was in full swing and fascism was really gearing up, and, com and compared to the ideologies that were running rampant, Einstein's tests and humility with regards to his own thesis were quite admirable and refreshing. It's one of the reasons he became a celebrity, at least in the secular world, because he said, well, you know, this is the thesis, but the real test will be the starlight around this, and even if that's the case, it may not be entirely proven because it's like worked out the the he was he was tentative right and uh, that is the mark i think of a of a good thinker right to 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 be tentative but not to be a pushover right that that is the challenge right so i'm tentative in putting forward oh i think i've done this or oh i think i've done that but i'm firm when criticisms of what i've done are illogical or invalid or just plain weird and silly Right. So I'm, you know, well, I think I've done it. I think I've, you know, but I'm, you know, I'm not going to say 100 percent certainty, uh, you know. Uh, uh, but then when pe so if people come up with good arguments against it, against it, I'm like, well, I have to incorporate those or deal with those. Right. Like there was a guy who said, why is it not UPB to eat fish every Friday? Well, it's a damn good question. Right. Um, and uh, but but if people just come up with silly things, then I'm very resolute in pushing those back. But uh, uh, so I would say the first thing is don't try and get rid of your anxiety about being wrong because that spears, spurs you on to, to greater uh, proofs and greater certainty and greater work. Uh, but the second thing I would say is the fundamental question, which I've mentioned a million times before, is you know, compared to what? Right? So yeah, there is a chance that I'm wrong, but compared to what? Right? There's a chance that any specific conclusion, any specific argument, every specific piece of evidence could be incorrect. Right? We rely on third-party reporting, as you remember from my Somali pirate thing, right? We, we rely on third-party reporting. Uh, we rely on the reports and integrity of others. Uh, we, rely on we rely on statistics that we have not gathered. And uh, ourselves are validated ourselves, most of which, right? So, yeah, absolutely. Every proposition, we may make a flaw in our argument. New evidence may arise that uh, disproves our argument or something like that. But uh, so, so any conclusion that we make c can be wrong. And I think that trying to get rid of that anxiety would not be particularly health healthy. But, 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 philosophy can't be wrong, right? Because we only know something is wrong compared to philosophy, reason and evidence, right? There's the superstructure of the scientific method. And by that, I just mean philosophy is bigger than science, right? It's nothing bigger than philosophy, but philosophy is bigger than science. So... Any 
any equation can be incorrect, but mathematics is not incorrect, because we only know that an equation is incorrect relative to the discipline and logic of mathematics. Right? So, any scientific proposition may be incorrect. Any theory may be incorrect, but we only know it's incorrect because of the scientific method. The scientific method itself cannot be incorrect. Right? So, so that would be, those would be my two. One, keep that anxiety about everything that you put forward. Two, do not have anxiety about philosophy, because philosophy cannot be incorrect, because there would be no way to know philosophy was incorrect if philosophy was incorrect, because there'd be nothing to compare any proposition to. So... I hope that uh, makes some kind of sense, and I hope that that helps you with that. But it's a, it is a challenge, for sure. We want to know, but uh, you know, it's really, really tough to, uh, uh, to, to, gain, to gain absolute certainty about anything except philosophy. Oh, he's saying it most comes from trying to advocate current conclusions to other people. Well, but you, you know, advocating conclusions is not healthy, I think, right? Uh, you know, to advocate a conclusion to someone is not healthy, right? That's why UPB doesn't just say murder, theft, rape, and violence as a whole is wrong and property rights are, are, are right. Uh, that would not be a book on ethics. That would be just a statement of opinion or bigotry in a sense, right? So I would say that when you're advocating things with people, I think that you want to step them through the arguments from first principles. And if you don't respect them enough to step them through the argument from first principles, I would not debate them, right? I mean, you, I, you've seen this a million times with me. Just think of the recent Hellfeld debate. I start from first principles, you know? What is the purpose of society? The purpose of society is either pragmatic for individuals, which means it's a free-for-all, or it's based on rational moral principles, in which case it's, you know, ethical and, and philosophical. You don't want to teach people conclusions, right? You don't want to teach people conclusions. You want to teach people how to think. You want to teach people methodology. And uh, if you teach people conclusions, then you're not actually teaching them anything. You're just giving them uh, another bigotry, right? It's bigotry even... If you don't know the reason why, it's still, it's still bigotry, even if you're accidentally right, right? So, you know, like when, you, when you're teaching kids, you don't teach them the times table and that's it for math, right? You I mean, they may need to know that stuff because it's helpful to memorize that, perhaps. At least I had to. But you want to teach kids how to think in terms of numbers, how to reason in terms of numbers when you're teaching them math so that they can go and do their own equations. Otherwise, you're just teaching them how to memorize equations, which is really not teaching them anything. He says, but yeah, if people are always informed to think for themselves and even encouraged to think of challenges, yes. Well, yeah, but this is the question. How much time do you want to spend talking to people who aren't interested in thinking for themselves? Right? This is a fundamental question to have. How much time do you want to spend talking to people who are openly resistant and hostile to thinking for themselves, right? Because I'm telling you, if you're just teaching people conclusions, you're making the world a worse place and you're just indulging yourself. It's got nothing to do with making the world a better place. The world becomes a better place when people think for themselves, not when people accept conclusions. So I would, I would just avoid conclusions work with methodology, and that will also give you a good sense of who's worth talking to. Yeah, also you miss out on the joy of learning and working it out. That's very true. And you also miss out on the possibility of correction from others, right? Um, you know, if all you're giving people is conclusions and they're giving you conclusions, you miss out on people correcting your thinking, right? I mean, I, I've got, I've got mind-blowingly fantastic questions from just about everybody at one time or another in this, in this show, just like Things that just make me go like, oh, shit, I'm totally wrong. <laughs> then I, oh, wait, no, I think I can save it. Ah, I think I can patch it. Um, 
I, I think that by teaching people by, by teaching people methodology, you are working with them. By teaching them conclusions, it's in a sense just trying to fill them with bigotry. Uh, so I would uh, uh, really, really uh, recommend uh, uh, teaching them methodology so that they can use that methodology on you and help you improve your thinking as well. Um, if you if you look at a debate or a conversation like I have to win, and the person comes up with a question I can't answer, that's bad. Look, if a person comes up with a question you can't answer, that's actually what makes it a conversation rather than just a one-sided lecture. So I would really, really recommend uh, it being a two-way street as far as that goes. It is a full-time, yeah, it is a full-time job. Uh, it, you know, it is a full-time job, but, you know, the shortcuts just make it a waste of time, right? Let's you say, well, I could teach people how to think, but that takes a long time, so I'll just teach them conclusions. Well, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, right? Like, well, I could ship someone the iPod they ordered, but that takes a lot of time, so I'll just ship them, ship them the box so I don't have to waste time packing it. It's like, well, that just leads to problems, right? So, uh, yes, uh, teach people the methodology. That way you'll be very discriminating in who you spend your time with, right? This is so early. This is such early days in, uh, in you know, what is hopefully a kind of renaissance of philosophy, you know, after the postmodern bile fest of the last 60-odd years. Um, you know, there's a kind of renaissance that's going on here. It's very, very early, which means don't waste your time teaching people conclusions, but work on the methodology. And if you find that, that you only get to talk to five people a year from that, that is a way better than talking to 50 people a year and getting nowhere, right? That is just wasting time and, and making the world actually a worse place. Because then people think that philosophy is about conclusions, not about the process, not about the methodology. And if they think philosophy is about conclusions, you've discredited the name of philosophy. So, Yeah, and somebody's mentioned they will be manipulated by the powers to be if you give conclusions. Absolutely. You know, we, we all think, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a great guy for, you know, giving people ideas and giving them conclusions. But, you know, there's always going to be somebody else who's more charismatic, who's better spoken, who, you know, there'll be some girl who comes along who's really attractive, who they'll just nod because whatever, right? You know, they want to <laughs> jump her bones or something. And so there's always going to be somebody out there who's, uh, who's a better speaker or than you or me, or who's more persuasive than you and me, who's, you know, more charismatic, who's funnier, who's, right? And the only defense against that is, is methodology. There's no defense against conclusions because somebody will always be uh, better, right? I mean, look at Barack Obama. The man is a complete golden god genius of rhetoric. And, uh, you know, I mean, look at what he's able to achieve by just spouting off empty conclusions and rhetoric. Uh, so the only defense against that is not to think, well, I'll be more charismatic, but uh, methodology, methodology, methodology. All right. Well, I think I think we are dry on questions. I uh, wanted to thank you all for adjusting your schedules for this. Superbly, superbly done. Thank you, everybody. I, I mean, I really do appreciate uh, taking calls from people or taking questions from people who've been around for a while because... Uh, I feel like I'm not constantly circling back to uh, ABC123. Uh, so I really do uh, I really do appreciate that. So have yourselves a wonderful week. I uh, will absolutely release some podcasts this week. I have some in the pipes. And um, I really do appreciate everybody's questions and feedback. Thank you to, to the callers. And thank you to everybody who's out there, whether you're on the show, in the chat room, in Skype, listening to this later. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the great honor of supporting Free Domain Radio, for the honesty and the openness and the great questions, the honor of giving me your questions. It is an incredible honor for me to, to be asked questions. And, you know, your, uh, your judgment is, is sovereign. You know, never substitute anyone else's judgment for yours, uh, mine, uh, anybody's, except maybe Barack Obama's if he's really on a good speaking spree. 
But uh, I really, really do appreciate the honor uh, and uh, the um, uh, the vulnerability that people show in asking questions. And I always, always want to try and do my best in answering them. But remember that um, these are just theories. These are just my thoughts. And, you know, your life, uh, the the, um, the rudder to your life is in your hands. And uh, maybe there's a little wind that comes from FDR that is helpful. But it's your propulsion that will make things go. Thank you so much, everybody. Have yourselves an absolutely, absolutely delightful week. I will talk to you soon.